I imagine um, that it came as a shock to Lauren Daigle just how quickly life can change when you live in the public eye. Um, she was about 27 years old. This took place about a year ago. Just a Christian singer-songwriter who wrote songs mostly, you know, for the church until she discovered one day, I imagine to her delight and surprise, that one of her songs had actually creeped up to the 34th spot on the Billboard 100 Top 40 Adult Pop Charts. And suddenly, her career began to open up. She got an invitation to perform one of her songs on Ellen DeGeneres' daytime talk show, which she did, and the performance went amazingly well. And she said it was an incredible experience until the criticism began to roll in. See, there were folks uh, within certain parts of the church that thought that maybe Lauren shouldn't be performing on Ellen's show because Ellen is an openly lesbian woman and and maybe Ellen as a Christian or Lauren as a Christian should have, you know, kept her distance from Ellen's show. When she was asked about it, she responded pretty straightly. She said, I think the second we start drawing lines around which people are approachable and which aren't, we've already completely missed the heart of God. I don't have all the answers and I'm definitely not going to act like I do. But the one thing I know for sure is that I can't choose who I'm supposed to be kind to and who I'm supposed to show love to and who I'm not because that's the mission, right? And the Fuhrer kind of died down again until a few days later in a radio interview on a Christian radio station, she was asked straight up, do you believe that homosexuality is a sin? And her answer was this. She said, I, I honestly can't answer that. In a sense, I have too many people that I love that are gay. I don't know. I actually had a conversation with somebody last night about it. I can't say one way or the other. I'm, I'm not God. And her reputation blew up. And I imagine that she was shocked at the speed with which people's opinions about you can turn and probably especially in the church. To the folks, I think, who were most vocally critical of her, they thought they were just standing up for truth and, and demanding that, you know, this young woman who seemed so wishy-washy would just take a stand for God. But as far as the watching world could tell, this was just one more time where the church was imploding in this unrestrained spirit of judgmentalism. We've been talking over the last couple of weeks about this survey that was done a number of years ago among millennials, both outside and inside the church, about their opinion about the church. And last week we talked about how 87% of millennials say that they don't really want anything to do with the church because the church is hypocritical. 89% of millennials outside the church say they want nothing to do with the church because the church is so judgmental. That if you were to ask 10 people, 40 and under, 
who aren't a part of a church, whether they would come to church, nine of them would say no because the church is so judgmental. Because in their experience, in their, in their either what they've seen or what they've experienced themselves, the church is a faith, it's a community that is entirely focused on pointing out people's faults in a way that causes them to feel put down, excluded, marginalized, and hurt. And they've said, I, I just don't want anything to do with that. Now, obviously, I think it should be said that not everything that people identify or everything that people feel as judgmentalism is genuinely coming from a place of a heart that is judgmental. There's actually kind of a, a redemptive side to judgment, judgment itself, in fact, is a neutral word. We can render judgments on lots of things that, um, that aren't criticisms in any way, shape, or form. I judge that my favorite food is pizza or whatever the case may be. And there's this sort of redemptive form of judgment that's just about trying to discern um, a standard that we can all live by and then hold each other to the standard. So if, you know, we were going out for lunch and... Uh, you showed up 30 minutes late, I would say to you, hey, we agreed that we would meet 30 minutes ago and, and I've been sitting here waiting for 30 minutes and you might feel bad and you might even feel judged by the way that I point that out to you. I, I'm not judging you. I'm just saying that we had agreed and now you're not doing it. But there's an, there's an unredemptive side that maybe we, we'll call the one rendering judgments, we'll call the other one being judgmental that has a lot more to do with the spirit that it comes out of that that is actually rooted in a self-righteous spirit that that consciously or unconsciously wants to demonstrate the person's moral and spiritual superiority by putting somebody else down even when we don't realize it the spirit that's what the spirit of judgmentalism does it's precisely what jesus was talking about in in luke chapter 18 in luke chapter 18 starting in verse 9 it says this some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else to them jesus told this parable now just think about that phrase confident in their own rightness and looked down on everyone else. In this survey that we were talking about, they surveyed people inside the church. Within the church, more than 50%, almost 60% of the people who responded said that they were quite confident that they were right about matters of life and church. <laughs> the Christian faith is about a mysterious and infinite God who has, you know, revealed, who has been revealed through Jesus Christ. And the witness to that is written down in the scriptures. But what we could say that what we know about God is so minuscule. And yet somehow most of us in the church are very confident that we're completely right about life and faith. That's the spirit out of which judgmentalism is born, being judgmental. So Jesus tells this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, a very religious person. The other, a tax collector, a definitively irreligious person. And the Pharisee stood by himself. Notice the, the distance that gets created by being judgmental. He stood by himself and he prayed, God, 
I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this guy, this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. This is a person who is confident in their own rightness. They're most, they are mostly certain that they're right about life and faith. That they've actually figured out what it means to believe properly. They've figured out what it looks like to live properly. They're not like this person who just doesn't know which way is up when it comes to faith. And Jesus addresses himself to that crowd and says, I don't think your heart is as close to the heart of God as you think it is. That kind of judgmentalism, that being judgmental, according to the survey, it emerges generally in four ways in how we treat other people. The first is when we render wrong judgments. Right? To a crowd of people that is mostly certain that they're right about life and faith, it's hard to imagine that we're wrong about our judgments. But we begin to forget, as Lauren Daigle said, I'm not God. In 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, it says this, the Lord doesn't look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The point of the verse is the reason that we get our judgments wrong is because we go by our perceptions. We go by what we can see. We go by stereotypes. Whether we're looking at the scriptures or we're looking at people, we're making judgments based on our limited perceptions. And the verse in Samuel, what it intends to say is only God can see straight to the heart and the truth of the matter. Only God always makes right judgments. The rest of us are quite often wrong at least in part we either render wrong judgments or we or we render judgments in the wrong timing and in proverbs 15 it says this a person finds joy in giving an apt reply how good is a timely word the proverb says when when the right thing gets said but it gets said in the right time and in the right way what results is joy in the conversation, but when the, even the right thing, and so often we're not sure that we're right, or even when we are sure we're not right, <laughs> even when we say the right thing at the wrong time in the wrong way, we can put people down, exclude, marginalize, and hurt people. We can be judgmental in that way. Thirdly, it's the wrong judgment, the wrong timing. Thirdly, the wrong motivation. Um, when we begin to obsess about people's beliefs and their behaviors, when that becomes the most important thing to us, we begin to lose sight of people themselves. And Jesus never called us to obsess about people's beliefs and behaviors. Jesus called us to love people. In Matthew chapter 9, another story about Pharisees and tax collectors. It says when the Pharisees, the ultra-religious, saw Jesus' behavior, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he welcoming and receiving and accepting and embracing these people who are so unacceptable? On hearing this, Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
Jesus is quoting God. He's quoting the Old Testament. And he says on the hierarchy of the things that God's values, dotting all of the I's and crossing all of the T's on our belief system and making sure that everything is perfectly right and dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's on our behaviors and making sure that we're living life perfectly, those things matter. They just matter less than treating people with mercy. And when we get obsessive about people's beliefs and their behaviors and to the point where we think it's our duty to point out their faults, we lose sight of the person and we lose sight of mercy and we become less like Jesus. The wrong judgment, the wrong timing, the wrong motivation, finally we play favorites. There are some things that we get very excited to point out in people, some hobby horses, some... um, Some particular sins that we just think are so especially bad, they can't go uncommented on. And then, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but there are other things, usually the stuff that we struggle with, that we don't get so harsh on. Yet in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, in a passage that's talking specifically about how God responds to sin, it says, God doesn't show favoritism. God doesn't treat some sins like this and other sins like that. God treats everybody the same. And so this is what the the world sees when it looks at the church, at least nine out of 10 people. They see a community of people who has actually made their faith about obsessing about other people's beliefs and behaviors to point out all the ways that somebody else is wrong in a way that puts them down, marginalizes them, excludes them, and hurts them by the ways that they engage in being judgmental in how we've just described. And as a result, nine out of 10 people say, it's enough to turn me off. I don't want anything to do with the church. And so what do we do with that? How do, we, how do we get on a different page than that? Well, to me, it all begins, I think the poster verse, the banner under which we ought to live in this regard as a church is Romans chapter 15, verse seven. It says this, a very simple verse. It says, accept one another then just as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. He says, if you want to live in a way that brings praise to God, then accept everybody else in the way that Christ has accepted you. That word accept is a word both in Hebrew and in Greek that means to extend a welcome to. It's used of a host that is welcoming people into their home, uh, welcoming people to their table. It is a word, the word means welcome, to receive to embrace someone as the part of your circle of friends and family, to embrace people as a part of your community as equals. The rabbis used to say that God welcomed the people of Israel. He rescued them from their oppression and slavery. He drew them to God's self. He invited them to experience the intimacy of God's love. He healed them from their pain and their loneliness and their sin. And the New Testament says that what God did um, for the people of Israel through Moses, what God is what God does in the New Testament through Jesus. For God so loved the entire world that he sent his son. And Jesus, or Jeff, Oh, that was a Freudian slip. Maybe we can edit that out later. Um, Jeff 
read these verses a couple weeks ago where Jesus says, yeah, I came into the world because I love the whole world. And it says, I didn't come to judge the world, but to heal it. That if we're going to be the kinds of people, what Jesus did is he came into the world, not to judge anyone, but to bring healing and hope into the world. And, and Romans 15 says, whatever Jesus did for us, that's what we're supposed to be doing for other people. Just as Jesus accepted you. Well, how did Jesus accept us? The word is unconditionally. Without the expectation that we've got all of our I's dotted and our T's crossed on everything that we believe. We've got our, all of our beliefs completely straight because can I break the news to you? I never get tired of saying this, but I'm going to keep saying it until we get it. Most of us are quite wrong about much of what we believe. Honestly, that's just true. We're right about some things and wrong about others. And my suspicion is that we're wrong about much more than we're right about. But Jesus accepted us anyway. He accepted us without the expectation that we have our I's dotted and our T's crossed on all the ways that we behave, that we are perfectly righteous in the way that we follow Jesus. And thank goodness, because honestly, we sin all the time. There are sins that we don't even know that we do, that we do. Sins that we don't even, we can't even point out to you as a community because by virtue of the culture we participate in, we're all blind to the depth of the greed of consumption that we all live with, for example. Stuff that we don't even know that we do. There's stuff that you don't know that you do, but everybody around you knows that you do. There's stuff that you know that you do and you struggle with and you're trying to break the cycle and you can't. There's stuff that you know that you do and you know that it's sin and you willfully choose to do it anyway. And you know what Jesus does in response to all of that? He accepts you exactly the way that you are without any expectation that you've got it all figured out in your beliefs. You've got it all squared away when it comes to how you live. And the apostle Paul says in Romans now, be just the way Jesus unconditionally accepted you. Now you go do that for everybody else. You welcome people in unconditionally without any expectation that their beliefs are all the same as yours, which is probably good because you're right in some ways and wrong in other ways. And they're right in some ways and they're wrong in other ways. And so we extend to each other this mutual welcome. Without any expectation that all of their behaviors are behaviors that you would personally approve of as Jesus faithful. Because you're right in some of those ways and you're wrong in some of those ways and they're right in other ways and they're wrong in other ways. And so we extend to each other this welcome that is unconditional. We invite each other into our homes. We invite each other into this family. We invite each other to the table. We invite each other into the circle of friends. We treat each other as equals because God doesn't show favoritism. We are all the same before God. And the challenge, the invitation is for us to extend this welcome. And not as an act of charity, honestly, because I'm wrong about some things and right about other things and you're wrong about some things and right about other things. I have as much to learn from you as I have to teach you. Because I've got my act together in some ways, but definitively not in other ways. And you have your act together in some ways that are different than me and definitively not in other ways. 
we come together as those who have as much in, we have as many ways to grow in our Christ-likeness because of what we see in the other person than what we have to model for the other person. We come together in community in this mutually welcoming embrace that is unconditional, that loves everybody the same. And we all come into community together. And by being in community together, we, be, we grow to be more like Jesus. That's how this works. And so how do we do that? There's two things I would say. The first one is this. We have to welcome each other unconditionally into our hearts. We have to actually want in our hearts to be in community with people who are different than us. I think probably my guiding verse in this is James chapter 1, starting verse 19. It says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone listen. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get judgy. Because human judgmentalism does not produce the righteousness that God desires. We get angry when people disagree with us. And James says, that sort of judgmental spirit doesn't make you righteous and it doesn't make them righteous. What does? Being quick to listen. Just closing our mouth long enough to hear somebody's story. To hear their heart, to hear their experiences, to walk a mile in their shoes, to be quiet long enough to understand somebody's faith, to understand their hope, to understand their pain, to understand where they're coming from and where they're going to, to empathize, to be slow to speak. To not rush in with our opinions as though we have the answer to everything. To not correct people as though, you know, pretending that we've got it all figured out, to not rush to label or to stereotype and then make false judgments on the person because we've already put them in a bucket, to not speak. We don't have to share our opinion about everything all the time. And three, to be slow to get judgy, to decide that we want to live in a community with people who are different than us in the way they believe and in the way they behave so that we can all together grow towards the image of Jesus because um, that's the only way you can grow. We have to make, we have to offer an unconditional welcome into our hearts by genuinely befriending, not just empathizing with people, but befriending them. To in this agendaless way say, I just want to love you. I just want to have you as a part of my life. I just want to offer you a part of my life for you. I just want us to be in relationship with each other. Not so that I can invite you like you're a project. I can invite you to church and get you to say the sinner's prayer, get in the baptism tank or whatever. If God does those things, then God is amazing. I I just want to love you just for the sake of loving you without an agenda because Jesus calls us to be for people. That's what, by the way, this whole 4-4 idea is. Who are your four people? It's not so that you can get them to church and have them, you know, whatever. It's just who are you going to unconditionally love and give a part of your life to in love to just say, I love you because God loves you because you're worthy to be loved. We have to invite people into our hearts, welcome them into our hearts. We have to welcome them unconditionally into our homes. It has to be made real. It has to be tangible. It has to be something we actually do, not just a feeling. We actually have to be in relationship with people 
In Acts chapter 2, this is how the Bible describes the earliest days of the church. It says, all the believers were together. And they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. This is what I love. It says all the believers were together. All. Everyone of every kind. In all of their diversity, in all of their differences, in all of their different backgrounds and faith understandings and experiences, everything that made them unique and distinct and different, they were all welcomed. They were all invited into people's homes. They all sat around the table together. They all ate and shared their lives with each other and formed community with each other in this gesture of unconditional welcome that says, you and I are the same, so let's sit and eat and be friends. That's what they did. They discovered the magic of eating together and how community gets formed over food. And honestly, friends, in our church, we want to live out this vision of an unconditional welcome into our homes. And we do it through something we talk about quite a bit, and that's life groups. Six to 12 people who get together outside of this environment with semi-frequency in each other's homes, hopefully to eat together because food is a beautiful community building thing. But to know each other, to share yourself with each other, to walk with each other, to learn from each other, to listen to each other, to grow from each other so that together as a community, we all become more like Jesus. That's the whole point of the thing. And the temptation, whenever we open our homes, whether it's for life group or just casually or whatever, the temptation is always towards sameness. I want to be together with people who think like me and act like me and talk like me and dress like me, who behave like me. I want to be with people who have the same demographic and the same stage of life and the same maturity in their faith. I want people who have the same beliefs as me and the same values as me so that we can reinforce our mutual security with each other that we're going to be okay because we're all on the same page. When somebody believes or lives out their faith differently than you, I have to say this, it's not a threat to the security of your faith. It really doesn't threaten you at all. In fact, what it is, is an opportunity for you to learn and grow from somebody who's getting it right in ways that you're getting it wrong. Because honestly, I said this before, the only way that we can grow is in the presence of somebody who's showing us something we don't already know. And so we gather together in these communities, whether in life groups, really formally, or the ways that we live together informally. And what we do is we intentionally provide an unconditional welcome to as diverse a community as humanly possible. People with whom we don't all share the same beliefs and we don't all have the same values so that we can open the scriptures together and listen to the spirit together. And before Jesus, we can grow in our understanding of who Jesus is and we can grow in the way that we live out the likeness of Jesus in our lives through this act of unconditional welcome. So that in ever increasing ways, when the world looks at you or me or when the world looks at all of us together, what it sees is something that makes sense when they think we call ourselves followers of Jesus. They look at us and they say, you know what? That's exactly what I thought a follower of Jesus. That's exactly what I thought a church would look like if they were accepting one another 
in exactly the same way that Jesus has accepted them. That's the dream. That's what it looks like to be for Niagara. I was emailing with somebody about this this week. They brought it up, the whole idea of how easy it is to judge, not even knowing that this is what I was talking about this morning. And we went back and forth a little bit on this whole idea of judging. And I said to them at one point, I said, you're you're not going to start judging me now, are you? And she wrote back to me. This is what she said. I'm really glad that judging is not one of the things I'm called to do. I get chills just thinking about how my bad my judgments would be since I never ever know the whole story. Not even my own. All I meant to say was that if we're going to judge people, we had probably better start with ourselves. I mean, seriously, didn't Paul say in Romans that covetousness and gluttony is punishable by death? When was the last time anyone did that? I learned early that if I point an accusing finger at you, there are three pointing back at me. And it appears to me that it is ever so much easier to downgrade the sins that are hideable and to upgrade those which we believe ourselves to be free from. Friends, I read that and I thought, that's what it sounds like to accept other people just as Christ has accepted you. May we become that kind of community and those kinds of people so that when folks look at us, they see a church that is for Niagara in the way that it looks like Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your grace is bigger and broader and more amazing than anything we could have ever hoped or imagined. In the way that you unconditionally open your arms and beg us to run into your arms in this huge embrace. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has never felt the embrace of your love because they've been too afraid, they've been wondering whether you would accept them or whether you would reject them, I pray, God, that they would run into your arms this morning and say, God, I want you to be uh, the Lord of my life. I want to follow Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit with everything I have. Would they run into your embrace this morning? And Father, for those of us who know what that embrace feels like, would you pry our arms open and teach us how to extend that same embrace to everybody else, no matter what, to look like Jesus so that the world will know just how much you love them, that you sent your son not to judge anybody, but to forgive and to heal. May you do that among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.